0: Chapter 23 of the Story of a Common Soldier of Army Life in the Civil War, 1861 1865. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sue Anderson. The Story of a Common Soldier of Army Life in the Civil War. 1861-1865, by Leander Stillwell. Chapter 23, Murfreesboro, Winter of 1864-1865. Franklin, Spring and Summer of 1865. After the retreat of Hood from Nashville, matters became very quiet and uneventful with us at Murfreesboro. The regiment shifted its camp from inside of Fortress Rosencrantz, out into open ground on the outskirts of the town, and proceeded to build winter quarters. These consisted of log cabins like those we built at Little Rock the previous winter, only now the logs were cedar instead of pine. There were extensive cedar forests in the immediate vicinity of Murfreesboro, and we had no difficulty whatever in getting the material, and we had plenty of nice, fragrant cedarwood to burn in our fireplaces, which was much better than soggy Arkansas pine. And I remember with pleasure a matter connected with the rations we had in the forepart of the winter. For some reason or other, the supply of hardtack became practically exhausted, and we had little in the line of flour bread, even for some weeks after Hood retreated from Nashville. But in the country north of Murfreesboro was an abundance of corn, and there were plenty of water mills, So General Rousseau sent out foraging parties in that region and appropriated the corn and set the mills to grinding it. And oh, what fine cornbread we had! We used to make ash cakes, and they were splendid. The method of making and cooking an ash cake was to mix a quantity of meal with proper proportions of water, grease, and salt, wrap the meal dough in some dampened paper or a clean wet cloth, then put it in the fire and cover it with hot ashes and coals. By testing with a sharp stick, we could tell when the cake was done. Then we would yank it from the fire, scrape off the fragments of the covering and the adhering ashes, and then, with bacon broiled on the cedar coals and plenty of good strong coffee, we would have a dinner better than any, from my standpoint, that Delmonico's ever served up in its palmiest days." On February 4th, 1865, the non-veterans and recruits of the regiment came to us from Arkansas, and so we were once more all together except a few that were in the Confederate prisons down south. We were all glad to see each other once more and had many tales to swap about our respective experiences during our separation. On February 10th, Lieutenant Wallace resigned and returned to his home in Illinois the chief reason for his resignation was on account of some private matter at home, which was giving him much anxiety and trouble. Further, the war in the region where we were was practically over, and there was nothing doing, with no prospect, so far as we knew, of any military activity for the regiment in the future. Wallace's resignation left Company D without a second lieutenant, as we then did not have enough enlisted men in the company To entitle us to a full complement of commissioned officers, and the place remained vacant for some months. On March twenty first, we left Murfreesboro by rail and went to Nashville, and thence to Franklin, about twenty miles south of Nashville, and on what was then called the Nashville and Decatur Railroad. A desperate and bloody battle occurred here between our forces under the command of General Schofield and the Confederates under General Hood on November 30th, only two days after our arrival at Murfreesboro. I have often wondered why it was that General Thomas, our department commander, did not send our regiment on our arrival at Nashville to reinforce Schofield instead of to Murfreesboro, for General Schofield certainly needed all the help he could get, but it is probable that General Thomas had some good reason for his action. When we arrived at Franklin, we relieved the regiment that was on duty there as a garrison, and it went somewhere else. It was the 75th Pennsylvania, and the officers and men composing it, so far as I saw, were all Germans, and they were fine soldierly-looking fellows, too. From this time until we left Franklin in the following September, our regiment comprised all the Union force that was stationed at the town. Major Knowlton was in command of the post, and subject only to higher authorities at a distance. We were monarchs of all we surveyed. When we came to Franklin, the signs of the battle of November 30th were yet fresh and plentiful. As soon as time and opportunity afforded, I walked over the whole field, in fact several times, looking with deep interest at all the evidences of the battle. I remember especially the appearance of a scattered grove of young locust trees, which stood at a point opposite the right center of the Union line. For some hours the grove was right between the fire of both the Union and the Confederate lines, and the manner in which the trees had been riddled with musket balls was truly remarkable. It looked as if a snowbird could not have lived in that grove while the firing was in progress. General William A. Quarles of Tennessee was one of the Confederate generals who were wounded in this battle, and after incurring his wound was taken to the house of a Tennessee planter, Colonel McGavock, about a mile from Franklin near the Harpeth River. Two or three other wounded Confederate officers of less rank were taken to the same place. When the Confederates retreated from Nashville, General Quarles and these other wounded officers were unable to accompany the army. They remained at McGavock's and were taken prisoners by our forces, They were put under a sort of parole of honor and allowed to remain where they were without being guarded. They had substantially recovered from their wounds at the time our regiment arrived at Franklin, and not long thereafter, Captain Keeley came to me one day and handed me an order from Major Knowlton, which directed me to take a detail of four men with two ambulances and go to McGavocks and get General Quarles and the other Confederate officers who were there and bring them into Franklin for the purpose of being sent to Nashville, and thence to the north to some military prison. I thereupon detailed Bill Banfield and three other boys, told them what our business was, and instructed them to brush up nicely and have their arms and accouterments in first-class condition, and in general to be looking their best. Having obtained the ambulances with drivers, we climbed aboard and soon arrived at the fine residence of old Colonel McGavick. I went into the house, met the lady of the establishment, and inquired of her for General Quarles, and was informed that he was in an upper room. I requested the lady to give the general my compliments and tell him that I desired to see him. She disappeared, and soon the general walked into the room where I was awaiting him. He was a man slightly below medium stature, heavy set, black hair, piercing black eyes, and looked to be about thirty years old. He was a splendid-looking soldier. I stepped forward and saluted him, and briefly and courteously told him my business. All right, sergeant, he answered. We'll be ready in a few minutes. Their preparations were soon completed, and we left the house. I assigned the general and one of the other officers to a seat near the front in one of the ambulances, And Bill Banfield and I occupied the seat behind them, and the remaining guards and prisoners rode in the other conveyance. There was only one remark made on the entire trip back to Franklin, and I'll mention it presently. We emerged from the woods into the Columbia Pike at a point about three-quarters of a mile in front of our main line of works that had been charged repeatedly and desperately by the Confederates in the late battle. The ground sloped gently down towards the works, and for fully half a mile was as level as a house floor. I noticed that at the moment we reached the pike, General Quarles began to take an intense interest in the surroundings. He would lean forward and look to the right, to the front, to the left, and occasionally throw a hasty glance backward, but said nothing. Finally we passed through our works near the historic cotton gin, and the general drew a deep breath, leaned back against his seat, and said, Well, by God, the next time I fight at Franklin, I want to let the Columbia Pike severely alone. No one made any response, and the remainder of the journey was finished in silence. I duly delivered General Quarles and his fellow prisoners to Major Knowlton, and never saw any of them again. Early in April, a decisive military operations took place in Virginia. On the 3rd of that month, our forces marched into Richmond, and on the 9th, the army of General Lee surrendered to General Grant. At Franklin, we were on a telegraph line and only about 20 miles from department headquarters, so the intelligence of those events was not long in reaching us. I am just unable to tell how profoundly gratified we were, to hear of the capture of Richmond and of Lee's army. We were satisfied that those victories meant the speedy and triumphant end of the war. It had been a long, desperate, and bloody struggle, and frequently the final results looked doubtful and gloomy. But now there were signs in the sky that the darkness was gone. There were tokens in endless array." and the feeling among the common soldiers was one of heartfelt relief and satisfaction. But suddenly our joy was turned into the most distressing grief and mourning. Only a few days after we heard of Lee's surrender came the awful tidings of the foul murder of Mr. Lincoln. I well remember the manner of the men when the intelligence of the dastardly crime was flashed to us at Franklin, They seemed dazed and stunned, and were reluctant to believe it until the fact was confirmed beyond question. They sat around in camp under the trees, talking low and saying but little, as if the matter were one that made mere words utterly useless. But they were in a desperate frame of mind, and had there been the least appearance of exultation over the murder of Mr. Lincoln by any of the people of Franklin, the place would have been laid in ashes instanter. But the citizens seemed to understand the situation. They went into their houses and closed their doors, and the town looked as if deserted. To one who had been among the soldiers for some years, it was easy to comprehend and understand their feelings on this occasion. For the last two years of the war especially, the men had come to regard Mr. Lincoln with sentiments of veneration and love, To them, he really was Father Abraham, with all that the term implied. And this regard was also entertained by men of high rank in the army. General Sherman, in speaking of Mr. Lincoln, says this, Of all the men I ever met, he seemed to possess more of the elements of greatness, combined with goodness, than any other. Memoirs of General W. T. Sherman, Revised Edition, Volume 2, page 328. For my part, I have been of the opinion for many years that Abraham Lincoln was the greatest man the world has ever known. In the latter part of June, the recruits of the 83rd, the 98th, and the 123rd Illinois Infantry were transferred to the 61st, making the old regiment about 900 strong. Company D received forty-six of the transferred men, all of these being from the eighty-third Illinois. And they were a fine set of boys, too. Their homes were in the main in northwestern Illinois, in the counties of Mercer, Rock Island, and Warren. They all had received a good common school education, were intelligent and prompt and cheerful in the discharge of their duties. They were good soldiers in every sense of the word. It is a little singular that, since the muster out of the regiment in the following September, I have never met a single one of those boys. The ranks of the regiment now being filled nearly to the maximum, the most of the vacancies that existed in the line of commissioned officers were filled, just as promptly as circumstances would permit. Lieutenant Colonel Grass had been discharged on May fifteenth, 1865, and Major Knowlton, who was now our ranking field officer, was, on July 11th, promoted to the position of colonel. He was the first and only colonel the regiment ever had. The vacancy of lieutenant colonelcy of the regiment was never filled. For what reason, I do not know. Captain Keeley was promoted major, and first lieutenant Warren to captain of Company D in Keeley's stead. And, thus, it came to pass that, on July 11th, I received a commission as second lieutenant of our company, and on August 21st was promoted to first lieutenant. Soon after receiving my commission, Captain Warren was detailed on some special duty, which took him away from Franklin for some weeks, and consequently during his absence, I was the commanding officer of Company D. So far as ever came to my knowledge, I got along all right and very pleasantly. It is a fact, at any rate, that I presented a more respectable appearance than that which was displayed during the brief time I held the position at Austin, Arkansas, in May, 1864. End of chapter 23